The following content is for mature audiences only and may be seen as graphic and is not suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. This is Infertile Millennial, a podcast where we chat all things infertility, IVF, and surviving your fertility journey. I'm Emily Orlando, reminding you that you're not alone. Let's chat fertility. Welcome to another episode of Infertile Millennial. Today's episode is featuring special guest Lauren, who is going to be sharing her journey with infertility, multiple IUIs, and IVF that eventually resulted in her current pregnancy. We're also going to be discussing the very important topic of deciding on the right clinic for you. As somebody who has struggled with infertility and has done multiple IVF rounds, something that I've come to learn is that it is very important to find a clinic who not only makes you feel heard and be seen, but also comes at your very delicate diagnosis with compassion and empathy. So Lauren is going to be sharing her journey to finding the right clinic. And without any further ado, let's welcome Lauren. Thank you so much for taking the time to come on and chat with me and share your story. So would you mind telling us a little bit about yourself? Sure. So my name is Lauren Greeno. Um, I am 38 years old. Um, I currently reside in New Jersey. Uh, I was married. I became married um, when I was 36. Um, so a little later in life, waiting for the, the right person to come along. So obviously, I started my uh, fertility journey a little later than most, probably. I'm currently an instructional coach. I was a teacher for many years. And an instructional coach is basically just someone who, um, you know, does professional development, writes curriculum. I have no children. I have two dogs. Um, very close with my family and my friends. Yeah, that's I'm a pretty simple person. <laughs> <laughs> so when did you start thinking about your fertility? Since you did get married a little bit later, did you start thinking of it earlier or how did how did that happen for you? I went through a breakup in my early 30s with someone that I thought perhaps I could have a future with. Um, that was a real wake-up call for me. I hate had uh, been going to the same gynecologist for a long time. She was lovely. And like, right when I hit probably 28, I was like, do I need to freeze my eggs? And she'd say, no, you're too young. Do I need to freeze my eggs? And then when I went to her at like 31, she handed me a piece of paper with a doctor's name on it. And she's like, this person is excellent. And I know I had been the one asking the question, but I literally walked out of that like yearly appointment and bawled because I'm like, oh my God, time is running out. I ended up not going through with it because at the time financially I couldn't afford it. Um, It was something that was obviously not covered by my insurance because I wasn't married and I really had no pre-existing health conditions that would warrant me to freeze my eggs. But I guess after, it was always in the back of my mind. And then once she kind of gave me that name, it, it made things kind of click for me. And the breakup was tough as it was. And, you know, I I was moving and all these other things were happening in my life. And I just kind of focused on my career more than anything else and pushed it to the back of my head and just focused more on being happy in the moment. And when I kind of focused on accepting life for how it was going to to go, because for a long time, I thought perhaps I wouldn't get married or be a mom um, and that I needed for other ways to be fulfilled and make sure that, you know, I am the best person I can be regardless of, of being a wife or a mother. And when I really like let go 
uh, that's when my husband kind of came into the picture. So, you know, we dated for probably 13 months before he proposed. Um, and then we were married in 2018, uh, the, literally the day after I had turned 36 the day before. So back to your original question about, you know, my journey, I, I didn't, it was always in the back of my mind, but I did push it aside. So obviously it was there, but it was also, it's, it's a difficult thing to grapple with, especially when your life's not unfolding exactly how you thought it would be. And you're watching friends get married and have babies. And I mean, obviously I work in a female dominated profession. So I'm constantly surrounded by young women getting married, reaching milestones, perhaps before I was. So I, I was kind of almost inundated from, from all sides with it. But we really like, we were so happy to be married and have met each other. Um, we didn't really start worrying, I guess is the correct word. Um, we tried for about, I want to say six to seven months. Um, and given my age, my husband was really the one that gave me that push to be like, I think we need to go see someone. I don't think any female wants to be like, yeah, I want to go through fertility treatments. Let's go. Perhaps there are. I don't know. I was not one of those people. I was scared. There was a lot of shame and a lot of self-blame around it. So I kind of went into autopilot. I kind of let him drive the process with the doctor or the clinic that we saw. It was almost easier for me to turn that part of my brain off, even though I am very type A and organized. It was kind of like, okay, this is what we're doing. This, you know, this clinic is associated with New York City. Obviously, you know, a lot of the top hospitals and doctors reside there. So it's got to be great. So kind of letting him drive that process, which was good. I'm glad he did because I don't know how long it would have taken me. I probably would have just kept on being like, oh, it'll happen. It'll happen. But Unfortunately, as women, we have that thing called the biological clock that works against us. And, you know, having a degree in special education and seeing the rates for autism and, um, you know, other genetic disorders that could occur based on a woman's age, you look at the viability of an egg past the age of 35 and things like that. So all of that started to come into play. So I knew that I had to, you know, really step up to the plate there. Yeah. So going into it, you already felt a lot of pressure with age and you knew that it was probably going to be harder for you just based on age and what you knew about fertility. A hundred percent. I had, you know, I always routinely went to the gynecologist. I always got a clean bill of health. I don't suffer from endometriosis or any other type of reproductive, you know, situation that would prevent me from having a child. So I, in my head, again, it was that double-edged of like, am I okay or am I not? But I think the longer we tried and that it wasn't occurring naturally, the more I realized that I did need outside assistance. But again, there is that blame and that shame because society makes you feel as a woman, your one job is to reproduce, whether that's correct or not. I mean, that would be, I know we were going to talk about advice um, down the line for women that are struggling with infertility or going through the process. I mean, my one message is like your worth is not defined by whether you can naturally biologically produce a child. Um, there's so much more to all the women in my life that I know that are strong, whether they're moms or not, they're still strong, they're still nurturing, they're still wonderful people. Again, I think it's ingrained in you, you feel frustrated that your body can't do the one thing that you feel it should do as a woman. If you ask any of my friends, or especially my family, again, I mentioned being a little type A, controlling, or, you know, very organized. I am not the prettiest or smartest person in the room, but I will try to be my best every single day. So when I set a goal, I usually can achieve it, whether it's professionally or 
with academics, but this was the one goal I could not achieve. Um, and that was really hard for me personally. So much of IVF or fertility treatment, whatever you're going through is out of your control. Letting that be okay was one of the biggest lessons that I've learned that I can't play God for lack of a better phrase that I can't blame myself. You know, someone told me once that I cling too tightly to things and that really clicked and resonated with me. And as soon as I learned to let go, to not cling too tightly to any one outcome, I mentioned before I met my husband, I had a lot of control around, am I going to get married? Am I going to be a wife? Am I going to be alone forever? But I let go and started focusing on other things and he came into my life. I seem to have forgot that lesson <laughs> um, and then kind of had to relearn it again. Um, and I truly believe um, that's what, you know, led to my final success, I guess, an outcome in this situation where I just let it be, you know, mm -hmm. you can, you can try your hardest and you can be positive and you can eat and sleep and exercise and do all these things. But at the end of the day, like it is going to be what it is. And that's a tough pill to swallow, except, especially for people that are, are used to perfectionism or, or expect the best out of themselves, but just taking that pressure and blame off yourself yeah definitely so um let's kind of go into when you first started realizing it was taking longer what sort of testing did you get done or what was recommended to you at that point okay so i started my initial treatment in july of 2019 um they did the basic panel where i got like really extensive blood work um they did the hysteroscopy where they like take the i believe it's the a, a kind of like a biopsy of your uterus i had the x-ray image of um, my fallopian tubes and uh uterus where they kind of flood you with dye to make sure that nothing's blocked and then they kind of tested my egg quality through that large blood sample i was basically told that it was unexplained infertility at that point the doctor did so bluntly tell me that I had the eggs of a 40-year-old and I was 36 at the time. This is where I realized, <laughs> this was my initial meeting with that doctor. My husband liked her because she was very blunt and to the point. That's very much his personality. Don't sugarcoat things, say it as it is. For me, when you're dealing with something that's so emotional and really tied to me physically, I need just a little bit more kindness and compassion um, in a doctor. And I especially feel like in this field, I, I, there is that emotional intelligence that EQ, as they say, that I, I do feel that you need to have. And I was lucky enough to encounter that later in my journey. Um, but yeah, she did drop that bomb on me. So that was, that was hard that uh, my egg quality wasn't great. But again, it's a baseline. It's one blood sample. I mean, they could have taken that test down the line and maybe it yielded something different. But yeah, there was really no official diagnosis at that point because I really hadn't gone through as many rounds of IUIs and IVS cycles at that point. And obviously the further I get into my journey, the more information that comes forward and it's almost like piecing together a puzzle at that point. So when you got that initial diagnosis, what kind of, did you have any sort of emotions that ran through your head or did you kind of have a sense of relief to know like, okay, now we know this is what's happening and we can figure it out from here? That's a very good question. Um, it was probably a mix of both. I think the unexplained infertility is a little frustrating because if you have an actual specific diagnosis in hand, maybe you feel like you could research it more, but this is basically just telling you that we're not sure. And it kind of, it is what it is. I 
probably felt relief that we were finally getting help and that I did put a lot of trust and faith in, in this clinic and the, in, in the doctors. But again, that level of frustration of being like, well, why isn't it working naturally? So that led to my, my first IUI, which was in September of 2019. What, so did you tell anyone when you went into your IUI or even before that, did you tell anybody that you were struggling or did you kind of keep this t- between the two of you? Um, you'll find a common theme also in my story is that I kind of kept a lot of things inside. I feel like it was a combination of guilt and shame. You know, I felt like I was letting people down. You know, my husband comes from a very big family. His one sister has three kids. His other sister had two. They were all conceived naturally. It made me feel like, God, they must think like my brother married this girl that's 36. You know, and they never made me feel that way. That was, I want to put that out there. That is 100% a feeling I put on myself. And then for my own parents, you know, my, my brother is a little older than me he's not married. I felt like, well, I'm going to be the one to have to, you know, bring the grandkids into the family. And I, I, I couldn't do that. So there was that feeling of not wanting to share. And the deeper that I got into my journey and the more we got a lot of bad news after bad news after bad news. And the more people you tell, the more times you have to repeat that bad news. And now for some people that could be cathartic, you're owning it. For me, it was like someone was ripping my heart out every single time I had to repeat that a cycle failed, an embryo came back genetically abnormal, the IUI didn't work, I got my period, there were just so many things of like, the more you open up to people in that capacity with with like the nitty gritty details, you open yourself up to more hurt because you do have to just repeat the pain over and over again. Um, so at this point, I mean, I, uh, we told both our parents, our families, I told, you know, my closest friends and that was basically it. Um, at that point, obviously I had to tell my boss, um, because you know, everything happens at least I'm not, I don't know, clinics might vary throughout the country, but here in New Jersey and New York, like you have the early morning monitoring hours and you know, some, yeah, you get there at 6 30 AM, but that doesn't mean you're going to make it to work by 8 30. So I had to confide in my boss. So I did tell her, and it's so funny. I, I, I look back to the day that I, that I told her, like, I'm starting this process. She was like, no problem. It's totally fine. I, I get it. I understand. I'm like, don't worry. I'm going to have this one IUI and I'm going to be pregnant. It's going to be done. I'm going to be early for work every single, like how, naive I was to think that I would just need this one really (laughs) non-invasive because in my head I had like I had mentioned earlier I'd always set these goals and I worked my ass off and I achieved them and this was just going to be one of those instances where life or God or whomever was going to teach me a lesson that to have patience and humility and you know sometimes you have to crawl through life in certain situations to reach the other side. Yeah, I I also feel like it's really common for people who start their fertility journey and their treatments, they think, okay, this is it. I mean, it shouldn't, this is what's going to get me to my end game. So we kind of go in a little naively thinking, okay, yep, this is the answer. It's going to take this one time and I will be pregnant from that. And so I feel like a lot of people in the beginning feel that way. A hundred percent, both people that have gone through the process and people that are unfamiliar with it. I mean, I'm not, you are the only influencer on Instagram that I actually follow that because I felt like your approach was always a mix of like your journey, but also other things in life that fulfilled you. It it really showed you as the whole person, not just someone that 
that is going through something terribly painful. So that's why you were the only person I could follow. And again, a lot of people find strength in groups online and, and different you know, pages to follow and it, the, how people seek solace in this situation is completely dependent on what's best for them. But mm -hmm. for me, it was just you that I really felt I could emotionally handle. And I liked your take on, you know, it wasn't the only thing that defined you. But yeah, I just, it, I think a lot of people I, I saw going back to Instagram, a post that was like, IVF doesn't guarantee a baby. And I think a lot of people go into fertility treatment thinking, this is it, whether it's a one shot deal, or I'm going to come out the other side of this, a biological mother, it doesn't, it doesn't guarantee no matter how many times you pray, how much money you spend, it's not always that guarantee. Yeah, that's, that is so true. So why don't you tell us a little bit about how your first IUI went? So both, all my IUIs were medicated. I was on like a low dose of Clomid, which was just an oral pill. And then I had to do the trigger shot, which I remember having to do my own trigger shot and having to like text one of my friends from work being like, I can't stick myself in the thigh with this. And she's like, you can do it. <laughs> and then I laugh at it now because my final round, I did four rounds of IVF. I mean, my husband was basically not involved at all. I mixed all my own medication. I injected myself. And as like weird as it sounds, there's so much pride in that. My level of growth and what I thought I could handle and what I actually could ended up, you know, rising to the occasion. So I had three, three IUIs, but uh, the way my clinic did it, uh, you had two IUIs per cycle. So you would, you know, take your Clomid, get yourself ready. You would trigger, do an IUI, wait, I think it was like 24 hours or 48 hours, come back, do another IUI. In the grand scheme of thing, my first one, I was very nervous for, again, you're, you're on a medication that yes, it's probably lighter than what I had then experienced in my four rounds of IVF, but it's, it's altering your emotions, your mood, you know, you're nervous, you're scared. The first one, like I said, I was so confident that it would work that I remember distinctly where I was when I got the phone call from the, from the nurse that it didn't work. I was actually in a classroom and I was working with a teacher and we were co-teaching a science lesson. In hindsight, I probably should have asked them to call me after work hours, but you're so excited. You think you're going to get this result. You got your blood drawn. You're going to be pregnant, this and that. I remember stepping outside the classroom to take the phone call, the nurse telling me that she was sorry, it didn't work. And like my heart just hit the floor. And I think in that moment, I started to realize that in order to survive for me, I had to mask a lot of my emotions because uh, I was not going to go home, which probably would have been completely fine given how emotional those that news was. I did not allow myself to cry. I said, okay, what are the next steps? And I went right back into the classroom to continue teaching. <laughs> Again, I'm not saying the way that I dealt with it is healthy. I think I have a lot of residual fallout from the last two years of probably not seeking therapy or joining a support group or even expressing my feelings that it's actually now that, you know, my, my journey has seemingly come to um, a positive conclusion. I, I am dealing with definitely unmet emotion, unmet feelings, things that I probably need to process on my own. Um, but yeah, that first IUI, again, nervous, but the phone call was the most 
uh, devastating thing of all, obviously. Yeah, I totally feel you on the phone calls because we've definitely gotten a few of those before and it's just so heartbreaking every time. And at this point, I'm like, next time I'm going to have them call my husband <laughs> and not me. Because <laughs> if it's bad news, it's hard to kind of keep your composure and be professional and say, okay, now what? And, you know, you're battling all these emotions, but you're also trying to understand what the nurse is saying and figure out what your next step is going to be. And it's a lot to deal with when it's you physically and emotionally who's going through it. So I think next time I'm going to have my husband take the call. A hundred percent. I mean, I did that too. Honestly, um, obviously our, we had not to jump ahead in my story, but our first um, embryo transfer after one of our IVF cycles, I was, because of the pandemic, we were remote. Uh, I was working remotely. I was working with a small group of students and I, I gave my phone to my husband who was working in the living room. I said like, pick it up when they call because I'm with kids. I can't just like pick up the phone, whatever. It's funny. We were living in an apartment at the time and it was like, the rooms are so small and close together. And I could just tell when he picked up the phone, like the sound of his voice that it didn't work. And I had to like sit there and work with the kids for like another 20 minutes until I could go find him and he could tell me the news. But yeah, you need to do what is best for yourself. And like, I'm sure your husband, he seems lovely and supportive, even though I've only seen him through an app. Um, I'm sure he wouldn't mind doing that to you. But yeah, the, doing that for you. But the phone calls are, they're rough. They're hard. They, are. they come, they're unexpected. And it's you're living life. And it's yeah, just, you can't wait around for them. So did you move forward right away to your next round? Or did you take a break? Um, no, I moved forward right away. We did basically three rounds of IUIs, but six total between September and December of 2019. And by December of 2019, with it not working at that point, again, my husband stepped up. He did drive the process at this point. There, there will be a shift in control. <laughs> but um, yeah, he drove the process at this point where he pressured kind of for us to move to IVF. I have being in education and, you know, being a teacher or whatever, I have excellent insurance. I am blessed beyond measure with my insurance by the amount of things that they reimburse. But however, you need to get approved before you go. My, for instance, my insurance, I could do unlimited rounds of IUIs, but moving to IVF, you know, you needed approval to get approved by the insurance company for them to, to cover it. And then I had, obviously I, I was allowed for egg retrievals that were covered and any egg retrieval after that would not be an unlimited transfer. So anyone listening to this that is paying for IVF, out of pocket or fertility treatment inside of pocket, my hat is absolutely off to, to you because the the financial impact of all of this is is unbelievable on top of the emotional. Honestly, I wish hopefully we get to a point in our healthcare system in this country that no matter what your insurance is, that you, you know, there is some subsidies available for people that are struggling to start a family. Yeah. But I, it's a lot. I think people don't realize how unbelievably expensive um, it can be. So by December of 2019, we were approved by insurance um, to start IVF. I started my first IVF cycle in January of 2020. So how did that cycle go? So I uh, I suffer from generalized anxiety disorder and panic disorder. So that's something that I've dealt with for a long time. Um, before my first cycle, I actually woke up in the middle of the night and had a full-blown panic attack uh, to say that I was afraid and nervous and scared uh, was an understatement. I mean, this to me was, I am injecting myself 
with hormones and needles and the monitoring and what if it doesn't work and the, the shame and the guilt and why didn't all the IUIs work and now I'm moving to the next step and just always putting on a brave face for friends, for family, for going to work and, you know, in not again, like I said, probably not properly processing any of the emotions as I was going through this, that I'm now dealing with that fallout. Um, so I was nervous. I know a lot of people or from what I've heard and seen that people go through IVF and, and they're like, they feel hope. Um, unfortunately, I didn't feel that hope. I felt more just scared and nervous. It was uh, very interesting. It, it, it really unearthed. I essentially ended up getting diagnosed with low ovarian reserve. So whether it's my age or I could have always been this way, my body just doesn't produce a lot of eggs. So even with high, high levels of hormones being injected into my body, I was still only producing 11 eggs total that were large enough um, you know, to be harvested with a retrieval. My first IVF cycle, they started me on like a baseline, um, I believe of meds and obviously all the monitoring, you know, you're going every other day. They weren't seeing the growth that they wanted. So Essentially, I got bumped up to the point where the doctor basically told me, like, I cannot inject, I cannot <laughs> inject you with any more hormones that I am. You are at your absolute maximum. We have to see how your body respond, responds. And it really didn't respond great. I think my first egg retrieval, I had maybe three or four that got to the point that they were large enough to be harvested. Um, my husband and I did, we were kind of adamant about paying for the genetic testing of the embryos. I should really back up because obviously step one is you, you you collect the eggs that are large enough and then the whole you know process of them being fertilized. So from that round, I think there was four that were retrieved, two fertilized, and they were sent out for genetic testing. Or no, I'm sorry, two were fertilized. One made it to that five-day mark where it could be sent out for genetic testing and unfortunately came back not fit for human life. So I had so much hope in that one embryo that that was going to be our shot. I, I did it. I did a round of IVF. I did the best I could, you know, with the fertilization process was out of our control. And then I remember we were actually in the office being monitored and our results from the lab got faxed over about the genetic testing and the doctor I had been seeing a different doctor at that point at that same clinic and you know he handed me this piece of paper and said I'm so sorry Lauren like it's just genetically not viable we can't do the transfer and he said do you want to know the sex and I said no and he folded the piece of paper and gave it to me like I'm still crying thinking about it just because I just as I had written to you like I felt that that was this point in my journey where I'm like, I have to shut off all emotion because I won't be able to function as a wife, as a daughter, as a sister, as an aunt, as a person functioning in society. Like I, I have to shut this off and like seeing that, you know, it was a girl, which is what I always wanted. And I just felt like questioned God at that point too, of like, what am I doing wrong? Why am I not good enough to be a mom? So that was like, probably the apex of my pain throughout that journey was like having putting all our faith in that one embryo and then just having it not work which in hindsight I mean I'm glad we did because it prevented me from going through a miscarriage which I know many women do if they can't afford the genetic testing or their clinic doesn't do it or send send the embryos out and then you know you end up suffering in a different way so that was just like a pivotal point for me and then COVID hit <laughs> 
And um, we were always going to do another round, but COVID hit, kind of shut everything down in New York City where I was getting my treatment. Uh, I believe the governor had put, um, you know, he had put a stop order on non-elective surgery, which is what they would consider an egg retrieval to be. So kind of got a break for March and April. And then things kind of reopened back up in May. And then I did a second cycle with that same clinic um, under the same doctor's care. She did the same protocol, which should have been a red flag. Obviously, the first round or the protocol that she had prescribed for my first round, I didn't perform perhaps as, as maybe best I could given my age. We had, again, and known at that point that I wasn't producing as many eggs, but I still had eggs in which to produce. But she kept with the same protocol. Uh, the same level of medication, the same type of medication. I didn't question it because, I mean, to me, these people are doctors. They've been to school forever. I mean, this clinic that I was seeing had a really great reputation. Um, so you, you put a lot of trust in, you know, okay, they care. They know me best. They know my case. They know my history. At this point, you know, we had been there for quite a while. And unfortunately, that second cycle, we ended up canceling. So I, we kind of made the joint decision. She looked, I was quote unquote, performing worse. I had less eggs that had reached that size or maturity that they wanted. And she felt like it would be a waste to go in and try and do a retrieval. And I agreed. And I'm glad because I was able to, I didn't quote unquote, waste an egg retrieval that would have been covered by insurance. It was the right move at the time, but it was very frustrating in the sense that I felt like she did nothing to analyze my performance for my first cycle and make minor tweaks for my second cycle. Rather, she just prescribed the same protocol and ended up getting not, not the greatest result. So that was when kind of we decided to, or I decided at that point to switch clinics. I had just not a great experience. And again, I don't want people to think uh, because I wasn't getting a baby or my IUIs didn't work. It was the level of patient care. It was disorganized in the sense of insurance claims and appointments and there were satellite locations and they would blame other locations for losing paperwork. I had a nurse inject me with no gloves on once. It just became, yeah, in my heart and in my gut, I'm like, this is not right. And it has nothing, nothing to do with the fact that they could not, quote unquote, produce a baby for us. It was, it was more so, so many things wrapped in one. Any advice for people that are researching clinics, definitely talk to people that are patients if you can listen to patient testimonials, read things online with a grain of salt, because most people will hop online when they're upset. If you can interview doctors, because you, you this is you're putting your body through a lot. And you want to just make sure that, again, like I said, your Instagram account, I feel represents the whole you, you want a clinic that looks at the whole person. Yeah, I think that it's really important to if you feel like you're not being treated fairly, or maybe you're cycles aren't going the way that you thought or that you know they could go better or maybe there's something you're questioning it's important to be an advocate for yourself and so if at some point you're at a clinic and you're like you know what I feel like I need to switch then I need to switch I've actually had people message me privately because I've had two failed cycles and they're like have you considered switching and I'm like no because I trust my doc I know my doctor is doing everything he can and the thing is like when people do question me they also don't know the full story or the full extent I don't think there's anything else differently that we could be doing at this point you know and I think sometimes when people want to judge you on what you're doing with your journey they're not looking at the whole picture they're just looking at what you've 
said. They haven't seen your paperwork or anything like that. So it's it's really a matter of, do I feel like I want to change doctors? Am I comfortable? Do I feel heard? And if you don't, then that's when, you know, look into something else. Just do whatever feels right for you. 100%. I mean, trust your gut. Like you, you're saying you've had unfortunately two failed cycles, but you're sticking with your clinic because you know your doctor's in it with you, analyzing, thinking about your situation, what's best for Emily, how does her body respond and react? And I felt like the opposite, I wasn't getting that. I was getting this, well, this is the the protocol cookie cutter. This is, you know, this is what we're giving her. And this is, oh, I guess it's like not, you know, it's not our fault. I mean, I actually, the breaking point of why I left there is I went to an appointment, a monitoring appointment. I, you know, you see a rotation of doctors when you go to these places. I wasn't always seeing the same one. And I had seen a woman that I'd never seen before. And she did the ultrasound to check the amount of eggs that were in my ovaries and said, why are we even doing this? Saying that out loud. And I was like, why are we even doing this? Why am I here right now? And I- That is so (laughs) awful. (laughs) I mean, that is just the culmination of every, I think at that point I was, so unbelievably done with the callousness. When you when you work in that field, you have to have a different level of empathy and compassion. I I don't believe that every nurse or doctor out there should be doing that. I actually myself, um, I love my main nurse who I speak with. I love her. She has the most amazing, just compassion and empathy for what we're going through. But they did have a nurse there last time I was there. I don't think she's there anymore, who just, in my opinion, shouldn't have been there. You have to learn how to speak to these patients because we're we're not just a reproductively healthy couple trying to conceive. We have a diagnosis. And I think it gets lost sometimes in some people that you have to come at it a little bit nicer. A hundred percent. I feel like, yes, these people are, you know, these doctors have trained so much and the nurses have credentials, but there's a human aspect to this. There's a human element to working in a medical field. And like you said, this isn't a general, (laughs) this is not your primary care physician. You're not calling for strep results. Oh, do I have the flu or can you prescribe antibiotics? Or, I mean, this is, you're dealing with someone's life and trying to create a life. And I I could not agree with you more. There are just certain people that shouldn't be in this line of, of medicine. And I think it makes that empathy piece makes the world of difference. And I hate to generalize, but especially for women who can often be sensitive and hard on themselves, you need someone that is positive, is calm, is kind, is caring, who tells you like, I know this is hard. I know this sucks, you know, but we're here for you. We're here with you. And I, you know, I did have at the first clinic, I did have a doctor, Dr. B, who was phenomenal. I, he was the one that delivered the bad news about the, the embryo. I swear to God, he cried seeing me cry. You know, he was the one that was constantly telling me to take care of myself. I think he saw how emotionally fragile I was at that point. Um, but everyone else, yeah, it was just like, I, they were just telling us whatever. So I, it's just very, very difficult. So tell us a little bit. So once you switched psych or not, sorry, once you switched clinics, tell us how that went. So from the minute I called, I just got a better feeling in my stomach. So I started setting up our appointment in July of 2020. This was a clinic that had been referred to me by one of my close friends that I work with who had um, her own 
uh, fertility struggles. She had a positive result with this clinic. She gave birth to two beautiful twin girls, but she had a positive experience. She loved her doctor. I honestly should have listened to her from the start, but I didn't. <laughs> so it took me a couple months of mistakes until I figured that out. But it just it just felt different from day one, from the way the office staff was organized. They were polite. Uh, my old clinic, I didn't have a nurse assigned to me. So I had a rotation of people calling me from the Manhattan office, from the Staten Island office. They didn't know me or my story. They were just blindly reading out results. Um, at my new clinic, I was assigned, uh, you know, one doctor to manage my case, obviously, and then one nurse who was also very to the point, very blunt, but I like the fact that it was just she and I, every time I called, unless she was, you know, unless she was off or, you know, on vacation or rightfully so, even the nurses that would call in lieu of her calling were fabulous. So nice, so kind, so compassionate. I like just having one person that I felt knew my medication protocol, could answer my questions, got to know me over time. It was just so much more efficient organized, it took away that extra layer of stress. You are already stressed out. You're on high levels of hormones. You're emotional. You're going through this journey. You're questioning whether you're ever going to be a biological mother or not. And then to have other things layered on top of it, like rudeness or just disorganization, it just adds another layer of stress that I feel in this industry or this field of medicine is, is not necessary. Unfortunately, some clinics, they do run like a factory. It, it, it does become a business at the end of the day. Let's not you know, mince words here. There's a lot of money to be had in insurance and things like this. So you just want to find a clinic that that really looks at the whole person. Um, this clinic offered uh, that I switched to, they offered support groups at night, they offered nutrition counseling, they offered regular counseling. So there was always, not that I took advantage of them, but there was always, you know, they, they, they recognize the fact that this is an emotional, traumatizing, for lack of a better word, often dehumanizing experience, tried to fill the gaps that were not just straight medical, looking at the whole person, your emotions, your physical health and all those things. So it just felt different from the beginning. I met, I, I just randomly was assigned a doctor. She was just from the get go when she met with my husband and I so calm, so kind, so caring. I remember telling one of the nurses, like, I feel like the building could be on fire. <laughs> and she would just be like, it's okay, let's exit. Like just so soothing, so kind. And, but still didn't mince words, you know, looked over everything factually. When I would ask her, I would elevate to that next step of being like, what if I need an egg donor? What if I needed an embryo donation? You know, she she'd say, well, when we, when I feel like we need to get to that point, we'll have that conversation. She never like dismissed me. She recognized like the fears that I had or, you know, me barreling ahead to the next 10 steps and, and always recognize that. Um, the other thing that she did really well was I had two IVF cycles through them. Um, and she analyzed you know, both my cycles, both cycles were very successful. The reason I did too was we would like to have a second child one day and I, they just wanted to bank as many healthy, viable embryos as possible. My first cycle with them, I was able to, they were able to retrieve 11 eggs as opposed to the other clinic that got two. So already there was that burst there of confidence where I felt like, wow, the other clinic made me feel like everything I was doing was wrong. It was my body. I hated who I was. I, how can I not do this? 
properly to like, oh, wow, they switched the amount of medication I'm on. They switched the timing, the intervals of my medication. And look, I'm getting a better result. So I think I had 11 the first time, nine the second time, which blew my numbers out of the water for me. Now I know other women might listen to this and be like, oh my God, I had 30 eggs retrieved on my first, you know, but everyone's body is different. And, and mine just, you know, I'm a little conservative, I guess, with what I produce. It's a point to be made that a lot, I think, in society, it's always like, there's something wrong with the woman. It's her. It's me. I think a lot of people, even in my own life, looked at me. I'm, an, I'm at the time I was going through this, 36, 37, 38. Oh, it's Lauren. Something wrong with her. She's old. I'm not saying those things aren't true. I know I have low ovarian reserve, but like. Totally feel you on that. Um, and I, we're very open that we have male factor. And I cannot tell you how I still have people messaging me and emailing me about what I should be doing with my body. And I'm like, it's not me. <laughs> I literally have, there's, I'm thankfully very healthy. I have produce a lot of healthy eggs. I'm still very young. And yet people still assume that because we're going through infertility, it's me. And even if I shout it from the rooftops, it's male factor, <laughs> they still want to blame the woman. So I totally understand what you're saying there where society wants to blame the woman. 100%. And I think it's just naturally, I don't know why it is that way, but it, people that are unfamiliar with the process automatically assume, oh, it's got to be her. Oh, she has endometriosis. Oh, she's this, she's that. And they want to smack that label on. And like, for me, yes, if you want to point fingers and play the blame game, probably the majority of it was me. But there was a portion of my husband that factored into our fertility as well that everyone just ignores. And I think it just adds to the stress that's put on society. And like, look at you, you're putting your body through so much for something that technically isn't, quote unquote, your fault. Um, not saying that it's your husband's fault at all. It's no one's fault, but you're bearing the brunt of something that is not actually physically, logically wrong with you. So I'm sorry that people are messaging you. I mean, I've gotten those too. I mean, people asking me, is it his problem or your problem? Or have you given up gluten? Or my friend went here and did this. And my favorite is people who don't have, don't have adopted children that have naturally biological children asking me if I want to adopt. Have I thought about adoption? I 100% am with you on that because uh, literally I can't tell you that's probably the number one thing I get from total strangers. And it's like, why are you asking me, why is it my responsibility to adopt if I want to have my own biological child? And some people be like, well, then you're just being selfish. And it's like, well, then that's pretty your being the same if you're not going to go adopt because first of all adoption doesn't cure the desire to have your own biological child and for, and second of all we never said we wouldn't we just want to exhaust all options to have our own and it is funny it's always somebody who has their own biological children who say well you should just go adopt there's nothing wrong with adopting but telling someone that they should just because they were diagnosed with something is not the answer. A hundred percent. And I, I always would be opened. Like I, I, I know one person that, that chose to adopt a child. I would be more than happy to sit down and have a conversation with her because she went through the adoption process. She knows what it's like for this person. She just never found a partner and decided to adopt as a single female, which I think is phenomenal. I'll gladly sit down and talk to you, but yeah. people that have biological children of their own that want to say, well, you should just adopt. Have you thought about this yet? Have you thought about a donor egg? 
And again, that's part of the reason why I kept a lot of things to myself. Um, and I confided mostly in obviously my very close girlfriends who were, I mean, I, if I could shout people out on this podcast, the amount of love that I have received from people I work with and my friends are, it's the kindness of others that has gotten me through this entire process. Um, but I really confided in people that had been through IVF for infertility because they understood. I think as a society, we need to do better with, you don't always have to say something. You can just say, I'm sorry, this must be hard for you. I'm here for you. Do you need anything? Can I help in any way? People are so quick to, I don't know if it's judge or find a solution, but people just love to give their opinion when if they've never gone through it, how can you? There's other ways to support. I mean, I have my uh, uh, one friend, I swear to God, she should write a book on how to support people because everything she says is like spot on. It's never offensive. It's just always coming from a place of, I've never lived this. I'm so sorry you're going through this. It sucks. I'm angry for you, but what can I do? Yeah, that's the best response for sure. I think a lot of people are afraid to say, I don't know what to say. And that's the thing is like, that is okay to say, hey, I don't know what to say because I've never been through this. I don't know how to support you, but how can I? That's truly the best way to support someone, even if they feel like they need to give an answer. But really most of those answers they give are just plain not helpful you know yeah I I mean for a lot of people I do in my heart of heart think it comes from a good place I mean I had one person tell me that they knew someone that went to India to get treatment like I'm not going to India to get treatment just things you don't even know how to respond to and I just always try and tell myself like everyone does the best with what they have yeah everyone supports from a place where maybe they've been supported. So if they've been taught to always find a solution or if they've been taught to shut down their emotions, like everyone's just going to support you the best way that they can. Um, but that's not to say that it's not hurtful, that it's not frustrating, especially like, you know, you've been in this, the throes of this for a little bit longer than I have. I mean, I'm sure just the amount of time and the length, you just, it's, it, it wears on you. <laughs> yeah. The, the, the thing I've learned about all this, though, is that it is okay that even if someone is saying something that you don't appreciate, it's okay to kind of educate them and say, hey, I would prefer if you came at it from this direction versus the basically toxic positivity that so many people try to like start with. They don't realize that. And I've definitely noticed a difference from our current cycle that we're in and the past ones. The way that our family has come at this and our friends is much different than the beginning. And that's all due to me speaking up and saying, you know, I'm actually not okay that you say that and here's why. And I think that just straight communication with people and how you wanna be supported or how you wanna be supported is important to vocalize that as well during your journey. I, that's amazing. And my hat is off to you for, for, for setting those boundaries or speaking up. That is phenomenal. I mean, I, I do, I kind of shut both of our families out, not because I felt like they couldn't support us. It was more so my own guilt and fear that I was letting people down. And also too, it's a very painful thing. It's, it's much easier to, when you're in it, <laughs> to not talk about it, at least for me. It was just internalize, go, move forward, next step, one foot in front of the other. I, I couldn't 
it was hard for me to keep so many people updated on on what was happening. But yeah, but sometimes, you know, family, even my own mother, when I went for my first initial eval, and I, I came back, and I, I told her the, the doctor had told me I had eggs of a 40 year old versus a 36 year old. And I was hysterically crying. She's like, I told you, you shouldn't have done this. You don't need it in the moment. That wasn't what I needed to hear. Because I did. I mean, we started this process in July 2019. And I mean, we just, my last, I just got pregnant in April of 2021. So it's just, I did need it, you know? Um, so sometimes people do struggle with saying and doing the right thing. But I, I mean, my hat is off to you. Kudos to you for educating people. Because I think the more that we do speak up and say like, hey, that's not a really helpful comment, or I'd rather you reframe it like this, then maybe with the next person that they say things to, they'll think twice or think about what is the best way uh, to support this person. I do think toxic positivity is, is, is rampant in our country. Um, and I think it's okay sometimes just to say like, this stinks, this sucks, I'm sorry. Like, you don't deserve to go through this. And like... To me, when people would say that to me, that was enough. I didn't need the solutions or have you tried giving up gluten or dairy or I just didn't, you know, it didn't, it wasn't beneficial. Yeah, definitely. So why don't you tell us about your most recent IVF cycle? So I did, like I mentioned, I did two IVF cycles. They were more for banking um, as many viable embryos as we could. So I had two transfer cycles actually from IVF. The first transfer cycle I did was traditional where you are injecting yourself with straight progesterone and oil. Um, you're on other medications. I must say that needle <laughs> was my least favorite out of all of them. I feel you. <laughs> oh my God, I couldn't sit down for days. My lovely husband did an excellent job. He really did a great job with that, preparing me for that. I, I'd much rather inject myself in the stomach, but um, yeah, it was quite the gauge on that needle. So I, that was, that was, more painful that that transfer cycle i we went into it with such high high expectations again we started this process july of 2019 here i am january 2021 finally able to do an actual viable embryo transfer we had four embryos of different grades this was our highest quality grade embryo we went blind to gender um we just wanted a healthy child we wanted the one that would stick the most and unfortunately uh that cycle failed feel like by this point in my journey, I had almost com become completely emotional, emotionally numb. This was the phone call that my husband took while I was teaching online and I could hear it in his voice. And I, they called us maybe at like two o'clock and, you know, I had a meeting with my boss. I met with her until 4.30. Then I had, um, we were planning one of my friend's bridal showers and I had a touch base with her mom and I talked to her mom. And then finally it was like 5.30 and I let myself just like collapse and I let myself cry. So I kind of held it together to that point. There was extreme disappointment in that, but I just didn't give up hope because my doctor. Uh, we had a phone call, a follow-up after we got the news, literally within 24 hours, she had a follow-up and she had a plan for us. You know, she wanted to do a uterine biopsy to make sure that I had had a fibroid removed by the, my old clinic, just a small one. She wanted to go in and just make sure there was no inflammation. Um, she wanted to do a saline sonogram before we did that next transfer. So there were things that she wanted to put in place saying, hey, this didn't work. 
again on that phone call, I brought up an egg donor. She's like, we're not there yet, Lauren. I will let you know when we're there. So I had the uterine biopsy. They, she noticed like really microscopic fibroids that she was able to kind of just scrape out. The saline sonogram was fine. Nothing was blocked. So then that kind of prepared me for the transfer that I had April 2nd. It was my second transfer cycle. And I, I know I mentioned at the beginning of the, of the podcast that someone had told me don't cling too tightly to, to anything. And people are going to be like, oh, this girl's out of her mind. But I actually, <laughs> I reached out to a psychic at that point, which I just felt like after that transfer had failed, I, I was like, I, I don't know if I need answers from a higher power. I, I just need someone to guide me. And I, I reached out to, to this amazing person. And I just said, listen, I don't want to, I don't need you to tell me you know, how many kids I'm going to have, or if this is going to work, I, I just want to know, like, what is this block? What is the blockage? What am I doing that is perhaps causing this, you know, not to come to fruition? And she was in her reading just said, you know, <laughs> she kind of nailed me spot on and said, don't cling too tightly to anything. Um, so I kind of entered that next transfer cycle with that mindset. I mean, I literally felt different going in. I just told myself, you did the best you can. You prepped the best you can. She actually switched, my doctor switched my transfer protocol to a, to a natural protocol where um, I was just doing progesterone suppositories. I was not doing the oil and progesterone injections, which lessened my stress, I felt, and ended up working. So we got a positive phone call for our first positive phone call that it worked. And while I feel immense joy and gratitude, I'm still wrestling with when things have gone wrong for so long that why would this pregnancy work out? I am, thank God, 18 weeks pregnant and everything has gone great so far, but that doesn't mean I'm not marred by my past experience. And I think what I'm working towards now is allowing myself to feel joy, allowing myself to be happy, I feel that this child that I have fought so unbelievably hard for deserves that and not let the past kind of define, define me. And honestly, I haven't told many people that I'm pregnant, uh, just family and really close friends. I haven't made the big social media announcement and all these things because I know how triggering that can be. I hate one of the biggest things that irritates me is when people is like, let my story bring you hope everyone's story, everyone's path to motherhood is different. I'm not going to sit here and say, oh, Emily, I hope when we get off with this podcast that you're just like, wow, it worked out for Lauren. I, I don't know. I, you know, everyone's journey is different and uniquely their own. And just because it worked out for one person doesn't automatically mean it's going to work out for everyone else. I'm actually curious. Um, so you said you did a natural transfer. So you weren't on estrogen at all. You just did the progesterone? My body wasn't, the lining of my uterus wasn't thickening at the rate that they wanted to. So I ended up having to do a couple really small low dose inject, injections of Falstim, which is, I believe, estrogen. So I did a few, I mean, that was by that point, nothing. I mean, I was, it was just the, like the pen that you click and with the tiny gauge needle. And I just did a little bit of that to kind of boost my lining. And once they felt my lining was ready, they scheduled the transfer. Okay. Yeah. That's interesting because I'm also going to be doing a natural transfer. So I'm nervous about that because they're just completely relying on my body. But I have been hearing so many more women say, oh yeah, I did a natural and that's the one that I actually got pregnant on. It just turned out that all the extra stuff was 
too much for my body and my body wanted to do it on its own. A hundred percent. I mean, and I had that conversation with the doctor as well. I think the uterine biopsy helped because it kind of roughed up my lining a little bit. I know that that was something that what I'd read had helped, but honestly, my, um, it could be my body just didn't need all the extra progesterone. It was like, listen, this is too much. We're going haywire here. I mean, this is now two years into this journey of being injecting myself every other month with things. Um, definitely could be that. It also could have been, you know, my stress level was a lot lower. I mean, it was to go from having to inject yourself with that level of gauge of needle to just doing, a, you know, I did a progesterone suppository or I did a little bit of estrogen to, to, to thicken up my lining. It was a lot less stressful, 100%. I felt more relaxed going in, even though another one of my pet peeves is people telling you just relax. You'll get pregnant if you just relax, Lauren. Like, no, <laughs> it doesn't work like that. Yeah. Um, I think I had a better mindset to be quite honest with you. I didn't feel as emotional, as overwhelmed, a little bit more calmer, centered, aligned. So that's awesome that you are going into that, especially since it seems like, you know, the majority of, of your roadblocks perhaps come from your husband. It sounds like your body is equipped to do the thing that it needs to do. That's a, that's a good sign. Yeah, I definitely feel a lot more calm going in this cycle now that we've done two, now that I've experienced both a failed and a miscarriage, I now know like it, it whatever's gonna happen is gonna happen. So let's just get all of our tries in with insurance and we'll take it from there if we need to, you know, go further or whatever. What what advice would you give to somebody who's struggling with infertility currently? Again, I know I repeated this before, but that you need to know that your worth as a woman is not defined by your ability to have biological children, that your worth is seen in your kindness to other humans, your worth is seen in how you nurture animals or other people. There is more to life than just becoming a mom. Unfortunately, I feel society puts a lot of pressure on women, you know, to be that that wife and mother, but you are still a, a whole valued person. I wish I had more coping skills to get to offer to people but seek therapy i was seeing a therapist for a little bit during my journey it wasn't a good fit she was lovely but just not a good match i dropped it never picked it up and now i'm dealing with a lot of the emotional fallout now that i probably should have dealt with as i was going through be kind to yourself the words that i spoke internally during my process were not helpful i ended up hating myself hating my body i mean i told my husband on several occasions that he could divorce me so that he could have a family with someone else um, because I felt like I was somehow robbing him of a dream, but that the words you speak to yourself are very important. And I think you nailed a couple things too about being your own advocate. If you're in a clinic or in a situation or with a doctor where you're not completely comfortable, your body's going to feel that. There is such a mind-body connection. And as, as much as I tried to turn mine off, it will rear its head at other times. So if you feel like something is off, go seek out another doctor confide with who you want to confide in. Don't feel the need to tell the world. If sharing your story makes you feel better, it took me two years to be able to, to really share my story and tell other people what I have been through. And honestly, anyone who's listening to this, uh, you can find me on Instagram and DM me and I'm always open to talk and to share and to listen. And Do you want to um, put tell us what your handle is in case anyone wants to reach out to you? Sure. My handle is at L 
Landara. So it's L-L-A-N-D-A-R-A. So yes, find me on there. I'm private because of my job, but request me or DM me or message me. Like I'm always open to talk. Yeah, I love that. Well, thank you so much for coming on and just taking time to sit down and chat with me. I always like when people come on and share their stories because number one, nobody's journey is the same. I've never heard a story where everybody's journey is completely identical. So even if somebody can't relate to your entire story, they can relate to pieces of it. And I think with that, they'll feel a little bit less alone. Definitely. And I, I, I've said this to you in email, but I, I just, I admire you so much. I mean, you were in the depths of your own pain and your own struggle and you created a platform for people to share, which can honestly be very triggering, but I mean, you're doing a great thing by sharing women's stories while you're knee deep in your own, you know, emotional stuff. And really, I just admire your strength and your ability to just really focus. And, you know, I know that you'll have a good outcome. Thank you so much. Thank you again, Lauren, for coming on and sharing your story. I know that someone out there is going to resonate with part of it, maybe all of it, but hopefully your story can help someone out there struggling with infertility. And if you yourself would like to be a guest on the podcast and share your story with infertility, fertility treatments, or pregnancy loss, you can email me at emily at infertilemillennial.com and I will see you guys in the next episode.